Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and, of course, around the world. And as ever, we've got so much to cram in in our time together. Uh, Slightly different this week because I'm doing the live show on Monday night at King's Place and streaming live. So um, I'm going to be reflecting on things there, but that gives me the space to answer many more questions than usual. And for those of you who haven't sent in questions, don't worry, the questions are so brilliant, they cover a huge range of urgently relevant and interesting Topics. We've got an update from our exclusive lawyer on the Downing Street police investigation, a very interesting update. We've got questions on all kinds of fascinating things. So that will be a way in which we span the political landscape today. Uh, If you're listening to this on the Monday, I hope you can come to King's Place or join the stream As things stand, although things are so crazy at the moment, they could change at the last minute. Um, uh, Johnson uh, is scheduled to announce the lifting of all COVID uh, constraints uh, just before the show on Monday night and uh, hail it once more as a Freedom Day. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to explore the term freedom. It is the most potent term in my view in British politics um, and the most misused word in British politics. It is owned almost exclusively uh, by the Conservative Party and has been since uh, Margaret Thatcher's leadership where she brilliantly seized on this word in a particular way Um, and Labour although Neil Kinnock valiantly tried to seize it back and failed for reasons which I'll explore at King's Place, Um, Labour have never even tried, really, to claim it for themselves since that era. Uh, So Freedom Day, another Freedom Day. Uh, So I'll be reflecting on that. Obviously, the crisis in Ukraine, God knows what form it will be taking by the show on Monday night. Johnson's future, your questions, your points via the stream or live in the hall and perhaps in the bar afterwards if you come to the show. Um, Yeah, and there's Johnson's future, which has not emphatically gone away. 
I won't be focusing on it on my reflections because I've done so before, but no doubt you will raise it in various forms as you have done in some of your questions today. So that's the first notice. If you go to the King's Place website, you can book a stream ticket live at 7 o'clock on Monday night, or indeed for the rest of that week, it's still there as a recording. Uh, if you can't make it on Monday night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, or do come along. Uh, there are still tickets available to come and join us, and we are going to have some fun together. You know what I mean? A light-hearted look at Ukraine, COVID. We, well, anyway, we'll delve deep. That's the point of those shows. We have more space and time together than even with these podcasts, where, boy, do we delve deep. Uh, so that's one notice. Uh, the other one is thank you so much, those of you who've signed up to the patreon version of this show some of you say oh yeah it looks great the patreon page well thank you that's down to the brilliant podmasters who are guiding me through this world uh, of patreon um, and that's where i record now the podcast most of the time as well in their fantastic studio so by joining patreon you help contribute to all of that so thank you more urgently there have been brilliant suggestions one of the bonuses you get on patreon is talks uh, talks from me when well, it'd be a bit weird if it was somebody else to be honest on epic general elections underexplored in a curious way um epic general elections and anyway, it's over to you as to which ones we cover. In there at the moment is February 1974. At the start of next month, there'll be a new one. Now, I'm going to read out some of the suggestions here because even if you haven't signed up, which is fair enough, I suppose, I guess, um, it's quite interesting. It generates a lot of thoughts, which sort of confirms my instinct that this is quite a rich theme. So I'm going to read some of the suggestions from those who've signed up to uh, uh, Patreon for their next one. Um, oh, by the way, before I do, because it might sound, oh, this is a bit bloody earnest, this Patreon and elections. No, 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 you get a mug in certain tiers, which uh, Podmasters have uh, established. Um, a, a mug with messages so pertinent to our lives together on this podcast uh, a cup of consequences is one of the messages. That's the one I've ordered. I'm going to take a photo when I get it. I'm so excited. Anyway, uh, and all kinds of fun things. Not that this isn't fun. It is because elections are cin cinematic and novelistic in their qualities and drama, I think. Um, inevitably. Think of the stakes being played for at general elections. Um, so, to your suggestions for the next one, and I will announce the next one next week. And I say, if you haven't signed up, don't feel excluded, uh, because A, you can sign up, and B, it's quite good fun looking at these anyway. Uh, Philip Rowe suggests the Labour landslide in 1945, and then what, what went wrong for Labour in 1950 and 1951. Good idea. You sort of get three in there. And it is so interesting that a landslide turned by 51 to a defeat that kept Labour out of power until 64. Uh, Richard Blackburn, I think Rich Blackburn, you, you say on the text, Rich, can I call you Rich? Um, now, this is brilliant. And this is how this Patreon is going to work. But by the way, this is how the podcast works. Um, I follow your ideas, and Rich suggests for the next series one that I'm I'm going to do. I'm I'm just going to do it now. Um, 
what about influential non-elected advisors uh, as a theme? Uh, Dominic Cummings with uh, Boris Johnson, Marcia Williams with Harold Wilson. Uh, Rich adds that he, a friend of his went to school with Dominic Cummings. Um, he was never found at the scene of the crime then. Um, and of course, he left number 10 before the consequences of his Brexit uh, took shape. That is a great idea. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do six to begin with on general elections. And then I'm going to give a series on these enigmatic, mysterious special advisors that tell us so much about a prime minister and their relationships. And I might begin with Marcia Williams, fascinating figure, and go on to Cummings, but that will be after the election series. Then, of course, because these election ideas are so brilliant, we can return to elections. So um, Helen Gordon, the baker, she is really keen on October 1974 um, because uh, she was out of the country and came back I think Helen when did she come back Helen's the baker uh, who bakes bread and has promised to give me some I still haven't had the bread oh yeah they emigrated to Australia in January 1974 so they just her family missed out on these epic elections and then of course the referendum in 75 now when helen suggested this october 74 i said i can't do two from the same year and i probably can't helen in this first series but october 74 was so interesting you know two of the elements of that are fascinating i'm really tempted to do it i still might i'm going to announce it next week um, the first thing that was so fascinating is that Britain was in such crisis that Heath, still the leader of the Conservatives, proposed during the election campaign a national government, which says so much about Heath uh, and the state of Britain at the time. Um, and the other thing that marked it out was uh, Margaret Thatcher became a star in that election. Um, so I'm really tempted to do it. And Jeremy Thorpe, who, if you've listened to my talk on February the 74, was this charismatic figure, although tormented by what was going on in his so-called private life. Um, in October 74, became more eccentric than charismatic. He went around in a hovercraft during that campaign. I'm very tempted, Helen. Uh, it, 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 is, it certainly meets the grounds of, you know, cinematic politics um Stephen lamb says i've joined patreon uh not quite facing the consequences the, oh yeah but at a level where i've just listened to the uh 74 podcast i remember the run on candles at boarding school and back home after the end of term yeah uh that was the era it preceded the election heath allowed the lights to come on during the election in february 74 but before that as those of us at the less youthful wing of our audience um, will remember there were candles and power cuts, sudden power cuts, um, not during the three-day week, but before the three-day week. And, of course, during the three-day week, candles galore. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for uh, tuning in. He suggests 1979 and 1997 elections. Ah, but he says, how about 1964 as a left-field selection? The first time Labour had won from opposition. Yeah, absolutely, it was, and therefore is fascinating and rare 
to be announced. Uh, Simon Lockyer, he's joined Patreon to get the podcast and looking forward to his consequences mug. Yeah, so am I. The, the coffee will taste better when we reflect on consequences. Uh, he says he disagrees with me about John Major. Uh, he who he, he says has always been a good public speaker and when he contested the 192 election he had his famous soapbox and performed well I disagree with you uh, Simon the soapbox was absurd it was only because he won that it appeared triumphant but the victory was in spite of the soapbox in my view um, anyway I guess you'll be doing an electoral reform special soon. Only joking. Thank God, Simon. I'm not up for it yet. I will get there. Uh, but he would plump for 92 and 83. Um, 83 is a fascinating election, and I'm, I'm tempted by it. Um, will, to, be a, to be confirmed. Um, anyway, next on the list, Ruben Shaplin suggests 2015. To my mind, 2015 was the election that created Boris Johnson and many features of today's politics. In the run-up to this election, Farage enjoyed unprecedented media coverage and polling support as high as 25%, enabling him to raise the salience of EU membership and immigration, factors which led to Brexit. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. It was, it was of course, before that election that Cameron made the fatal mistake of offering a referendum on Brexit, as you point out, Ruben. And it was the election when the Red Wall began to show signs of crack, uh, cracking. Brilliant idea. Um, uh, he argues that the most significant one is 79. Yeah, uh, that that is, since 45, the key historic election. Um, absolutely. Uh, Stephen McGeoch, excuse me, Stephen, I haven't got your surname right, but I think that's the pronunciation. Uh, let me know if it's wrong. Uh, I was very interested by the suggestion you might cast an eye over the 2017 election. When you do so, I suggest that you give some attention to the extraordinary conduct and consequences around that election in Scotland. Interesting because I am fascinated by 2017. It's sort of been airbrushed out of history because it didn't conform with what the commentators expected to happen. But I hadn't clocked this. The SNP's vote collapsed. 500,000 voters stayed at home, and the party lost 18 seats. However, events elsewhere put the SNP into a position they must have dreamed of for 100 years. Labour's vote stood still, um, while the enthusiasm of the Corbynistas drove Labour to unexpected gains, are you talking about 2015 or 20... Oh, you're talking about 2017. Of course you are, yeah. Uh, Corbyn's uh, first general election. Uh, uh, Scottish Labour put on a measly 700 votes, all of them in Ian Murray's seat, etc., um, etc. Et yeah, yeah, Scotland and 2017 will be part of the theme if I address that election which has kind of been airbrushed out of history uh finally neil langston suggests hi steve thinking about elections and importantly the consequences da, 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 i'm proposing 1935 as a good subject it has everything secret packs the tories uh, uh with uh, yeah packs with between parties new and old leaders some of the manifestos could have been written for now 
My challenge to you, should you accept it, would be to do a programme and not mention first past the post. The voting figures are extraordinary. Yeah, well, that is so tempting. 1935, to take us all back to that era. Neil adds, the weather on the west coast of Scotland is awful, but even stuck inside for a lot of the time, I've still not figured out the Patreon yet. Well, you better figure it out, Neil, because that's where you will probably hear at some point a bonus podcast on 1935. It means me doing even more research than usual to get 19, to conjure it up. That's the... What I'm trying to do is conjure up the dramas. The stakes are so high in elections for these leaders to get into the minds of these leaders at the moment in their careers and indeed lives where everything is so intense it is almost beyond comprehension. Um, I, I often think of the live events uh, in the 2015 election. Do you remember Jeremy Paxman? hosted live events with the leaders being asked questions and Paxman interrogating them and Ed Miliband was on and at the end I noticed Paxman whispering to Ed Miliband are you okay it was just mind-blowing the stakes involved for these leaders anyway so to get that for 35 would be fascinating thank you so much for those suggestions and for subscribing and next week on the podcast i'll announce the next general election but the idea for the next series is in place it's going to be on those mysterious yet powerful advisors what is their hold over prime ministers uh i'm really excited by that um because it tells you so much, and yet they are underexplored and misunderstood in many cases. I now realise I misunderstood Dominic Cummings. More of that to come. Now to uh, wider questions. And the first one is Andrew Stewart from Sheffield. Looking forward to seeing you at King's Place on Monday. Are you coming down, Andrew? That's great. Uh, from Sheffield. Um, it's so much going on, it probably won't end until midnight so i hope there's no don't worry you'll you'll get back um anyway andrew says this is really interesting a few meetings ago at king's place i chipped in from the audience to say that i thought rishi sunak would not emerge as the next tory leader because ultimately he won't connect with the electorate i was also the person who predicted it would be one of the known front runners and would not be one of the known front runners using lee rowley as an example now i've been wondering who it was who suggested lee rowley as someone to look out for it was andrew you're a genius because within days lee rowley was given a position in the government and we all now think he's heading for number 10 sort of uh no, uh, Andrew goes on to say, though clearly Mr. Rowley has no interest and no chance, it was just to make the point that future leaders are often not widely known. For example, John Major was a low-profile chief secretary uh, just a couple of years, treasury chief secretary, before he became prime minister. And Tony Blair only re really came to significant attention after the 1992 election. Yeah, it is interesting, although um, I'm not sure about that, Andrew. John Major, by the time 
that leadership contest took place had been talked about for about 18 months as a possible leader and he definitely saw himself as a possible leader so um i don't think the idea that in a lee rowley-esque way they emerge from obscurity um but uh he goes on to say in the end, I don't think we should rule out either a very pragmatic choice by MPs, not Sunak or Truss, or the exclusion of the membership from the final choice. If there is seen to be a risk, they vote for electoral suicide. Well, Andrew, let's have more of this on Monday night at King's Place. It is, you know, uh, kind of um, fascinating. And, and you are, it's prophetic. Oh, my prophetic soul. Um, to quote Shakespeare in is that Hamlet anyway I look forward to your insights tell us what's going to happen next um, Kevin Collins I'm a regular listener to the podcast and to the King's Place live streams oh great and looking forward to the next one um, and has signed up to Patreon thank you so much uh, I have two questions the way the government has been stoking the culture wars has struck me as being intensified by Oliver Dowden's speech to the creepy Heritage Foundation in the US. Um, yeah, yeah, I kind of, uh, and he wonders what's going on, Kevin, in this, you know what he, he means, the Dowden speech about wokery and all this stuff, you know, uh, or it's all kind of nonsense and empty. Um, it Does this indicate how far the modern Conservative Party has moved to the right? Um, I can't see much of this appealing to the average uh, voter in the kind of what he calls a deliberate campaign to distract attention away from the troubles of the PM. Um, I find this very hard to read, this sort of Dowden stuff, you know, wokery and all this kind of thing, because I'm told that Downing Street are convinced of its potency. Um, and putting pressure on Starmer to disown wokery, whatever incidentally that means. It's one of these vague, imprecise terms that surfaced in broad British politics, like modernization and, you know, a kind of so many imprecise terms. As you know, I include within that imprecise language the centre ground. I am a centrist. Um, but um, I kind of, I think in the end, elections are de determined by economic factors more than any other and when people say what about Brexit wasn't that about identity and people indifferent to economic loss I just think when they voted they didn't believe there would be an economic loss um, so but yeah it, it was a weird rather empty speech from Dowden uh, the other question I have is the actions of this PM have clearly debased the foundations of the state and our democracy. Um, and he lists the things, proroguing parliament and all the other things we are familiar with. Um, the list goes on and seems never ending, indicating rules don't apply uh, to me or my supporters. At some point when Johnson is gone, we will need a reboot of our democratic institutions and system of government. Yet I see no way through to making this happen. Depends what you mean, Kevin, by uh, a reboot. Um, 
if Johnson is replaced in the coming months, the successor will make trust a key defining issue because it's easy. Following Johnson, you're going to look trustworthy. And they will do things. They will put in place things to symbolise that trust. Um, so there will be a reboot of sorts. And if Labour comes in, they'll do the same. Whether you mean by reboot, changes to the voting system, changes to the way number 10 run, etc., I doubt. Um, and now, on. thank you uh, for that. Uh, see, uh, see you on the stream. Uh, Nate from North London. Uh, just wanted uh, to message a couple of reflections on your episode on foreign policy. Um, uh, that was in last week's podcast. Nate says he totally agrees about how confused it is, but two things. I think you're right about Liz Truss going to Moscow just to posture without any strategic aim. I was talking about that weird press conference where the Russian foreign minister, is it Lavov? I think you pronounce his name just went for her and it was clearly just there had been no diplomatic space established making the act of diplomacy utterly counterproductive uh, but next i thought the comment about her dressing up as margaret thatcher was interesting it's much tougher for women in politics all the men dress the same yeah fair point um, although i think she is in the same way johnson I haven't just said it about her, Nate. I'm always going on about Johnson dressing up um, and he, he being only comfortable as a public figure dressing up. And I think in quite a clunky way, she is trying to appear like Margaret Thatcher, not just in her views, but in the way she poses. And remember that shot of her in a tank echoing that Thatcher shot in a tank so I, I i don't actually i i know what you mean there's a danger of lapsing into judgments about the way women appear but I, I i think it was a wider point about how she's trying to become thatcher rather clunkily um but th thank you for raising it. it's a fair fair point you said that labor is obsessed with factions and that once johnson is gone he won't have followers still fighting the fight in the same way Almost certainly right, but I'd challenge the idea that Labour is uniquely obsessed with faction fighting. In many senses, the Tories have been rife with factional infighting for a while now. Cameron's failure to appease Eurosceptics, who I'd argue are certainly a faction, was well documented. There's a Red Wall faction that tried and failed uh, to oust Johnson. I think the next leadership election will tell us a bit about the factions in the Tory party. Well, this is interesting. I, I was arguing, it was actually uh, recommending an article that Tom Clark, the former editor of Prospect, wrote, who uh, said he kind of despaired of the way Labour cannot leave its internal battles. Keir Starmer uh, writing an article about NATO, which in effect was, I am not Jeremy Corbyn and a sort of you know attack on stop the war campaign saying it comforted Putin I bet Putin as you know when he invades the Ukraine oh yeah stop the war in North London yeah that'll that they're with me I, I, anyway uh, and Tom Clark made the point that the Tories will get rid of Johnson at some point and just move on there won't be the factionalism and uh, what Obviously, I agree with you, Nate, that the Tory party is split in several ways. 
those in a minority, I suspect, who with Johnson want a more active state, as far as Johnson thinks coherently, um, and those who want a smaller state. It's really interesting now how those who were instrumental in his reshuffle last week uh, Johnson's reshuffle. Uh, Stephen Barclay has written a piece saying, "What I want is a smaller state." Rhys Mogg, in his new job as Minister for Brexit Opportunities, talks about a smaller state. Um, they're completely split over that. They were split over Brexit, and so on. But th- there's a difference between parties being divided and Labour's unique capacity. Uh, to loathe from within um, and the example I always give is in before the last election the left of center think tank IPPR put out a huge uh, policy paper on the future of economic policy and John McDonnell then shadow chancellor said this is our beverage this will be our the basis for our program and Rachel Reeves, then on the back benches, now Shadow Chancellor, hailed it as an important piece of work which could form the basis of fresh thinking in the years to come. They agreed on the essence of this set of proposals. And yet at that time, there were battles going on with Labour over what happened in 1976, what happened with Iraq, what happened. And, you know, there is a greater propensity to divide when there is space sometimes to come together. And and that's what I mean. Whereas the Tory party can uh, be fundamentally split and yet find ways of working through. And when they do agree, certainly don't pretend that they are divided. So I kind of, that's, uh, that's kind of what I meant. Um, on a final note, I'll be signing up to Patreon. Oh, thank you, Nate. Uh, normally just support one car- podcast, but your extra sounds too great to me. Thank you very much. One thought, will you cover elections that aren't just general elections, e.g. the referendum on the alternative vote? was in many ways a trial run for Brexit and arguably helped people in opposed political camps bond over constitutional issues. Yet, good thought. that Talk about airbrushed out of history. You know, we're all waiting for my electoral reform special, but we have already had a referendum on electoral reform. And it was fascinating because it was over a voting system no one had advocated. Um, so yeah, good idea. Um, referendums definitely included um, in the nominations for those uh, podcast specials. Uh, thank you, uh, Nate. Uh, Venetia Kane, yeah, something I've been pondering for a long time and which has pushed its way to the surface yet again as I was watching yesterday's briefing from Independent Sage on what the terms of the ref- reference for the COVID inquiry should be. Now, um, Venetia uh, sent to me the link to the YouTube of the Independent Sage on the COVID inquiry and how it could be uh, illuminating and revelatory and Independent Sage are determined to play their part in that. Um, uh, And I recommend watching it, actually. I I click the link and it's a really interesting discussion for those, you know, say Freedom Day, Freedom Day. Monday, Freedom Day, uh, all restrictions lifted. And and then, as ever with him, uh, the past 
will no longer be a factor in his thinking and yet we have lived through history as Venetia Cain says does the great historian Johnson have no thought for his future reputation in the history books as he takes his various decisions on not just COVID but Brexit and everything else yeah because he doesn't think through consequences which are analyzed and made sense of in history um, but anyway if you if you want to have a look at that independent stage I haven't really followed them I think Venetia Kane follows them at every twist and turn um, if you uh, google on YouTube independent sage there's some really interesting discussions um, anyway thank you for that now yeah David Smith our exclusive uh, lawyer who's following closely the number 10 investigation by the police um, and he gave us a detailed assessment last week of the use of the questionnaire as a means of investigating things. Now, on this, uh, the twist this week was, if you remember, uh, ITN got another exclusive saying that uh, before their question by the police, the 50 or so odd people in Downing Street facing these charges, the penalty charge notice, can have a look at the evidence accumulated by Sue Gray in their interviews with them and so on. And it looked as if the Metropolitan Police were going out of their way to make it as easy as possible for Johnson and others in number 10. But David Smith says this, uh, the... the uh, I was making, yeah, this is the key point from David's letter. Um, it's perfectly normal in a police investigation to have an idea of the evidence before you respond. So he is saying, in effect, that the police are just following normal procedure. So a very useful counter to the assumption, and there's a lot of it out there, that... Um, the police are really trying to make it so easy, you know, first of all, blocking the Gray report from being published at a moment of maximum danger. And now say, oh, yeah, before we question you, here's all the stuff we've got. Uh, David makes it clear that this is normal procedure. So um, thank you for keeping us up to date with the Downing Street inquiry from a legal perspective, which is the key one as things stand at the moment. Uh, John Bennett from Geddington in Northamptonshire. Uh, many thoughts for your fascinating thoughts on British foreign policy. And that was last week's podcast. Uh, I don't disagree with the general thrust of your arguments, but may I pick a couple of points uh, that you said, pick up on. First, you said that ever since 1945, British foreign policy has been shaped by the primacy of the UK-US relationship. Uh, that might be broadly true, but what about Harold Wilson's refusal to get embroiled in Vietnam, which undoubtedly saved us much in lost lives uh, and reputational uh, damage? Wilson is still underrated by many as a prime minister, um, though I sense you rate him too. Yeah, I do. And I think he, he needs, uh, he deserves rehabilitation. And I'm surprised uh, I forgot to mention Wilson, if I did, and Vietnam as an example of an act of political courage in the late 60s. Um, and again, this word boldness and courage needs looking at. Because when Tony Blair took the weak option of being unable, in his from his perspective, to challenge 
uh, Bush's decisions on Afghanistan and Iraq, he was hailed for his courage and bravery. But the courageous stance is when you dare to move away from orthodoxy. And Wilson did, not wholly for reasons of bravery and principle and courage. He had other calculations to make as well. But it is an example. And what didn't really follow through from that were deeper questions about where did that leave Britain in the world? If its relationship with the US was not, in effect, an alliance of support of unquestioning kind of uh, potency, what about Europe, etc.? Um, but you're absolutely right to point that out. Uh, when talking about Keir Starmer's NATO speech, you suggested that if Johnson is deposed, the Conservatives won't emulate Labour's post-Corbyn factional infighting. Ah, here you I think you're with Nate on this. There won't be a Johnsonian faction. True. But Margaret Thatcher's defenestration has cast a long shadow and her acolytes in the modern Tory party exhibit much of the same messianic zeal as the Corbynistas. Um, uh, yeah, you're right, they do. Um, and by the way, that zeal is reciprocated in Labour by those who loathe the Corbynistas. So you get this clash of zealotry. Um, whereas in the Tory party, actually, you, you don't really. Uh, the, the Thatcherism has uh, prevailed and continues to cast its spell. But what is interesting watching the Tory party closely um, is that you can see attempts to move on from Thatcherism, but they are stuttering and awkward and clumsy at times. So Theresa May spoke about the good the state could do, uh, inspired by Nick Timothy, her then advisor. There's another good one to do when I do that series on advisors. Shakespearean moment when she had to sack him after the 2017 election. Uh, and then Johnson, you know, every now and then says, call me Roosevelt, Roosevelt, New Deal. Um, these these attempts to move on. Thatcher wouldn't have uttered either of those phrases. Um, and nor would Cameron. Uh, Cameron's modernization was a an attempt to boost Thatcherism, not go on from it. Um, so, yeah, th there are, as I said to Nate, profound ideological divisions in the Conservative Party, which makes it as difficult a party to lead these days as the Labour Party has always been. But this attempt to find cause for mutual loathing when actually there is a degree of consensus which would be wholly surprising if explored is I think unique to the Labour Party. Um, okay over to Jeff uh, Strange. Um, so he asked Jeff, now that we have seemed to have entered a presidential way of doing things in our politics, definitely a presidential style, the focus on leaders, Jeff, you're right. What qualities of leadership should our uh, prime minister aim for or the opposition leader? Or have we lost consensus politics if we ever had it? 
did it all start with Theresa May, where it was really quite difficult to see those tiny words Conservative Party against the three-foot-high letters spelling her name on the side of the battle bus. The presidential culture had already been in place by then, Jeff, but you're right, in 2017, Linton Crosby advised Theresa May to make the election about her. It's easy to forget, but at the beginning of the campaign, Crosby was sort of right. Her brand was stronger than the Conservative brand. She was way ahead in her personal ratings. Um, But for reasons that I might explore in that Patreon bonus podcast, it all fell apart in the 2017 election. Anyway, um, uh, uh, Jeff gives his assessment in terms of strategic and tactical skills of various leaders and prime ministers. I won't read them all out if it's okay with you, Jeff, but he he says Thatcher was both strategic and tactical, although her strategy was, in essence, a Micawber-esque monetarist ideology. It was. Uh, In a way, that wasn't a, a strategy as such. It was her fundamental belief. And she turned that into a narrative about freedom, amongst other things, which I will be reflecting in on uh, at King's Place. Starmer, he says, is a forensic tactician, belying his tenure as director of public prosecutions, but lacking any coherent strategy or uh, is not a strategist. Um, well, I, say, I think the jury is still out with Keir Starmer. There is, I can see the shape of a pitch to the electorate, which could be quite effective. Um, but it's in embryonic form and is the topic for another podcast and might not take full shape. It partly depends, incidentally, on whether his office at some point gives up the every initiative is framed as attack on the left or this shows Corbyn. I know why they're doing it. But if policies are framed in that way, the wider electorate who don't pay attention to anything will not just say, oh, this is brilliant. Keir Starmer has uh, purged that wing uh, that had dominated Labour up to the 2019 election, even though he was part of it in the shadow cabinet. I think they'll just see a weird, disturbed party. Um, But anyway, more importantly, they will lose the policy. They they just won't notice it. It's what Neil Kinnock discovered in the 80s. He put forward brilliant arguments about the role of the state to counter Thatcher's idea that the state stifles no one noticed because of the factional uh, infighting the civil war that was going on um anyway thank you for that uh jeff see you on monday night at king's place peter wright i was listening to your most recent podcast on a very dry dry and wet walk through braben valley in edinburgh sounds like a beautiful work walk even in the rain uh Comments were made about the next general election, but a crucial factor in determining the next UK government will surely be the position adopted by the SNP. This week, they and their Green allies announced their plans for Indy Ref 2 in 2023. The Tories will stonewall this, of course, but what will Labour's approach be? Will their approach be modified by Gordon Brown's proposals when they emerge? Gordon Brown is reviewing... Uh, you know, the the UK, including Scotland and the regions in England. Um, As one who voted yes in 2014, but has now changed his mind due to the consequences of Brexit. That's you, Peter. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, I can tell you now, uh, Keir Starmer will be unequivocal 
in his opposition to another referendum um, in the build-up to the election. And you are right to suggest that his protective shield, he hopes, will be Gordon Brown, who still has some authority, I think, in Scotland as a voice, um, and his proposals for constitutional reform, uh, not only for Scotland, but for, the, as I say, uh, England too. But let's see. But um, I, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon will get her referendum in 2023. Um, if you put yourself in Johnson's shoes, if it is Johnson, you don't hold a referendum that you think you might lose. Um, and by the way, she won't want it if she thinks she might lose. Um, thank you, Peter. Enjoy the rainy walks and soon the sun will shine on that valley. Uh, Steve uh, Lake, long-time listener, first-time correspondent, welcome. And by the way, please, uh, those of you who haven't written before, do. Um, yeah, the email address is steverick1414 uh, at icloud.com. And Steve Rick is S-T-E-V-E-R-I-C. They're 14 at icloud.com. By the way, that uh, address has been given, if you're running at the moment, make a mental note, it's around 44 minutes. So if you think of questions and points for next week, uh, that's when you can pick up the address. It'll also be on the podcast blurb. So will the link to uh, Patreon and King's Place. Um, uh, uh, yeah, oh, Steve's question after all of that. I wanted to get your thoughts on the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. He's been far more visible in recent weeks due to the ongoing crisis in Ukraine but to the best of my knowledge was almost invisible through the weeks of Partygate scandals. He's certainly not one of those cabinet ministers wheeled out every morning to justify the unjustifiable. Yeah, him and uh, Rishi Sunak don't do those interviews, do they? Uh, whenever I've heard him speak on Ukraine, he's come across as measured and competent, in marked contrast to most of his colleagues. I assume he wouldn't be anywhere near the cabinet if he wasn't a Johnson loyalist, so I'm curious as to how he's managed to keep his distance from the worst excesses of the Johnson administration. Um, yeah, he... he, he there, there was speculation at one point that he might lose his job, and he was certainly, I think, deeply upset by Johnson and Raab's handling of Afghanistan uh, you know when Biden announced it was all over um, and he sort of indicated that I think he was in tears during one interview uh, with LBC over that period um, but he is more measured um, than quite a few of the populists in this bizarre uh, cabinet um, but he's made absolutely clear he doesn't want to be prime minister and i think that's true i don't think he'll be a candidate but um he is one of those in the cabinet who are more substantial than some of the others in a not particularly competitive field um ian manners one of your correspondents mentioned peter bone saying no one on his doorstep showed any interest in partygate i find that interesting as i'm a regular canvasser for one of the main parties labor on the edge of Oldham. seems every time we go out the weather expresses the broader public view of politics by raining on us blowing hard in our faces my experience is that most uh, doors don't answer when you knock. The few that do either welcome you when they say see your party badge or make it clear they don't want anything to do with you. You make it sound so exciting, Ian, this um, 
admirable and important work of canvassing and meeting constituents is. Debates on politics on the doorstep are rare things and converting someone from an opposing view is unheard of. A friend and long-time campaigner tells me the real purpose of the canvas is in any event to determine voting intention and not to debate. Yeah, that's thank you for that insight. It again exposes this thing, oh, on the doorstep they're talking about other things because on the doorstep it sounds, from what Ian says, the exchanges are fairly limited. A uh, quick update from our French correspondent, Dominique Joule. I've just been reading the results of the latest opinion poll um, uh, on the election, the presidential election, which confirms a 10-point lead for Macron, up half a point. That his polling has been very consistent for weeks now is notable enough. But to, to have achieved this without formally declaring he'll even run, coupled with the fact that he has done no official campaigning, is somewhat remarkable in my view. On verra, as we say here. Yeah, it, I hadn't clocked that, that he's uh, got this sub substantial lead before the official campaign begins. Um, it looks as if he's going to be re-elected. Thank you for that update, uh, Dominica. Uh, James Daniel, I was listening to an interview with Anna Sauer, who talked about Scottish Labour raising £250 in the year before he was elected leader and £1 million in the year since. This got me thinking, if you had any reflections on the impact of the money in campaigning in British politics, it clearly has less impact, or at least in lower sums and amounts than the US given campaign spending limits. Has an election you can think of been tipped by one party having relatively money, more money or less? Uh, thank you. That's from James Daniels. Yeah, good, good, good question. My view is that the need for big sums, which both all the parties feel urgently, is greatly overstated. Um, I can't think of a single election where big money has been the determinant factor. Um, Conservatives often have most, and it is true they win most elections, but I think that's to do with other things. Indeed, to give you one example, I think the media, the newspapers, and therefore their influence on the BBC and other outlets is a much bigger factor than the millions spent on advertising or whatever from the political parties. I can't think of an election where money has determined it. I think they all spend a fortune when a lot of it, when you think about it, is uh, paid for by the broadcasters who, you know, film what they do. And, uh, you know, nowadays with the social media, that's all kind of free. I know they pay experts to do their social media and messaging and pay them huge sums of money. But um, I, I think it's to do with a symphonic combination election wins of leader values the policies that arise from the values the capacity to make it absolutely clear that these values and policies will benefit the whole of the united kingdom and every element of an electorate um, to make them appear reassuring and exciting that combination essential for any Labour leader of the opposition and so on. And all of that is about um, the leadership, frankly, um, and, and less about money. It obviously helps if you've got it, but it's not the main factor, I don't think, James. 
Um, uh, Laundry Joe has written. He's called that for new listeners because he listens to the podcast while he's doing his laundry. Um, and he wonders about, oh, he's using that Theresa May phrase. Is there a magic money tree? I ask because I stupidly get keep getting into Twitter arguments regarding tuition fees and corporation tax. Um for a muesli munching, avocado loving, rye bread devouring, uh, and he says, Thank you, listeners, for you, all your recipes. Guardian worshipping liberal, I have quite unorthodox views. In my view, tuition fees are good. Tuition fees have led to a greater participation in tertiary education by lower income families, whilst in Scotland, universities have become less progressive. Is that true? Uh, the many listeners in Scotland when I point out that the money that free tuition would cost and that could be better spent on early years social care and infrastructure investment the typical reply is that the government should pay for everything I've just listed as well as tuition fees uh, when I point out that there are limits to government expenditure, the clarion cry is to increase corporation tax. If you were advising Rachel Reeves, how should Labour approach borrowing, expenditure and investment without being accused of being reckless with money? Well, that question, Laundry Joe, will take up a whole podcast at some point. It is the key question always for Labour in opposition. Um, and uh, it's, it's always tricky. Uh, no easy answers, but it, it, that's a whole podcast that will come to it. On your specific, I don't wholly agree with you. Uh, uh, England has the highest tuition fees, I think, in Europe. Um, and it, they're too high. Um, remember, they tripled overnight when the coalition moved in in 2010. You know, these so-called centrists, tripled tuition fees. I remember having a chat with James Forsyth, who was then, still is, isn't he, political editor of The Spectator, and he said, uh, I, I mean, I think he approved of it, but he said they've, in effect, privatised the university system at a stroke. Um, and a lot of people, it's crazy, um, a lot of the debts are never paid, and so the state pays and things. So what I would do personally, if I were in Rachel Reeve's shoes, is to reduce them but not wipe them out because you say it is very expensive. So I sort of half agree with you. I actually, Joe, you know, I'm doing a third way. You know, let's reduce them but not, not abolish them. Um, uh, but you know, it was one of Keir Starmer's pledges in that leadership contest. Fascinating question: Did he have to pledge so much to win uh, with that electorate in the leadership contest? He probably did have to do the tuition fees thing. But it is expensive. And she said, I remember there was a big debate. I think Angela Rayner, when she was Shadow Education Secretary, said uh, and before the 2017 election, let's not just do, let's not abolish tuition fees. Let's focus on early years uh, and social care and so on. Uh, but these are tricky, tricky questions. And um, they are always hazardous for Labour. And in terms of winning elections, they quite often get it wrong. Um, tax and spend in British elections are treated like, you know, it's a kind of an accountancy exam. You know, ah, you know, the, the endless interview. So if you're doing this, so 3.5p on this means that 50 million on this and so on. And, of course, none of it ever happens after an election. Look at the Tory manifesto in 2019. Um, you know, half their tax and spend plans have not been kept. They'll, they'll blame COVID. 
but actually it was incoherent in the first place in terms of an accountancy exam. Um, but it didn't matter because no one <coughs> challenged Johnson. He gave few interviews. Oh, get Brexit done. Anyway, fantastic questions as ever. Um, and it's been great really to have the space to do this while I reserve my reflections on freedom. Freedom. Yeah. And Thatcher's freedom from the state. It's what we all yearn for. Freedom. Um, and I'll, I'll be doing that and hopefully you can join me as say at king's place or on the stream and uh thank you for the election suggestions on patreon the patreon blurb will be on the link um thanks to the brilliant podmasters for that and for this um and yeah i'll announce the next election special next week and start giving some thought to those enigmatic figures in number 10, the special advisors from Cummings to Marcia Williams and others. Yeah, Nick Timothy, fascinating figure, really interesting. Anyway, look, have a great week. I hope to see many of you on the stream or live at King's Place. Let's all get together next week for the podcast and hope to see more of you. We're going to have some fun on Patreon too. Thanks so much. Have a good week. Bye.